You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. May Allah be with you and all the blessings that come from God Almighty. And thank you for joining us today on Drive Time. It's a Tuesday, and it is the 9th of August, 2022. And as always, the sun is shining in this heat wave or this constant sunshine that we're receiving and it smiles all round for the weather that we have and it's wonderful for me to be here with my colleague Zakaria. How are you this this afternoon actually? I'm doing well, Uh, thank you very much. How are you? Well yeah, today I cycled in record time which is quite good so pleased about that. Okay, wonderful. (laughs) Um, Other than that, uh, a little bit thirsty but all good. Ready to go for the two shows that we're doing today in the first hour and in the second hour and I will let you know what those are just before that as always you know if any of the content that we deliver in this live show that really interests you by all means just give us a call on 0208-687-7878 or on the normal social media platforms just send us a message send us a tweet send us a post or anything that you want to do ask a question and our handle is always at voice of islam uk and it'll be wonderful for us to be able to interact with you because one of the subjects that we're talking about today is should students exclusions um and should students pupils be expelled Um, and that's a question that we're also asking you on our Instagram as well so we're going to be talking about that in the second hour of the show and understanding is it really the last resort or the only resort that's left for teachers to be able to expel students there must be some alternatives and that's what we're going to be talking about with some of our experts but in the first hour Uh, We're going to be talking about children during the war, the sad situation that we're seeing around the world, not just in Ukraine and the conflicts that we see all over the world and how children during the war are really being affected. And Zakaria, when you look at the annual UN report of the children and armed conflicts that were released only this year in July, it does detail a devastating impact that the mm-hmm. various forms of conflicts have had on the children around the world. Yeah. And it was only recent in 2021. It is, it is. Children during 2021 actually had to endure conflicts, um, escalating military coups and takeovers, protracted mm. and new conflicts actually, um, as well as uh, violations of international law. Overall, the report found almost 24,000 verified grave violations against children, an average of some 65 violations every day. Now, the killing and the maiming of children was the most verified grave violation followed by the recruitment and use of children and the denial of humanitarian access. As you already have discussed today in today's show, in the first hour... We will be speaking about the protection of children during the armed conflicts, uh, the abuse of children and the Islamic teachings on war. 
I mean, you're right, especially when you kind of touch on this subject about the abuse of children and how these armed conflicts end up abusing children. And I think it's really important for our listeners to understand the Islamic point of view when we're talking about the teachings on war, because there is this misconception that we have a completely disregard. And there is this term that you hear a lot as human shields. So people will not send their rockets to go and bomb a place when they're trying to find someone. Mm. But none of this, and you can categorically answer this for me, Zakaria, has got anything to do with the teachings of Islam, right? Exactly. It has nothing to do with Islam. In fact, um, if the, the Holy Quran actually says that, uh, and, and this is in chapter 8, verse um, thir- uh, 62 and mm. 63, that, and if they incline towards peace, incline thou also towards it, and put thy trust in Allah. Surely it is he who is all-hearing, all-knowing. And if they intend to deceive thee, then surely Allah is sufficient for thee. He it is who has strengthened thee, with help, with his help, and with the believers, you know we have to remember that mm. the Holy Prophet peace and blessings be upon him, all the wars that he has fought or he commanded to fight was out of self-defense. He never liked, you know, wars. He never liked to fight. He never, of course, you know, he would never, you know, say that I like to fight. Um, you know, my my own people are dying, right? So he never liked the fact, and and this verse. Uh, of the Holy Quran shows that if there is any possibility of peace, if ed- there is any possibility to um, uh, not to go ahead with the war, then you should you should you know avoid it. You should avoid the war. Um, but if it's not possible, if your life is is in threat, then of course you know you have to uh, out of self defense. Mm. You have to go for the fight. Yeah. But then also in in Islam. Uh, you know, we will be discussing this in more in detail. Who were excluded? Who you were not allowed to to attack? And that was, of course, you know, the elderly, the the youngsters, the the the, the people who mm. are not able to fight, the women, etc., etc. So you were not allowed to attack them at all, yeah. right? So and and the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace be upon him, uh, he also, you know, preferred to fight in places where. You know, there were no uh, people living. So he would go to a different place where you only would have, have the battle. Um, and and um, um, so this way, no you know, ordinary people will mm. get involved. Of yeah, beca- because we know the effects of a war, especially those who are innocent, are impacted for generations to generations to come, right? Yeah. Uh, and they will never be able to attain what they would have been able to attain if they were not influenced in, in this situation yes. uh, with a war. And when you kind of look into this report by the UN on the children and armed conflict that was released earlier this year, there is this whole situation where it kind of describes where the places where most of the children were affected by this kind of grave violation especially and they just took a snapshot in uh, 2021 and they said that Afghanistan the Democratic Republic of Congo known as the DRC Israel and the occupied Palestinian territory Somalia Syria and Yemen were the most effective and when we start looking about 
the world conflicts and we can just pick these off. Yeah. Everybody knows that these are the conflicts that have been happening around the world. And as a result, who is suffering? The, the children, the innocence of the children. So yeah. it's, and some of these conflicts, when you like Yemen and Syria, relatively, is still quite new. But when you compare it to Yemen, which has been going on for decades now, and obviously the situation between Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories and Congo, they're also not not new either. Hmm. So we haven't really done anything in a way to resolve this problem, and it carries on. And it also says in the report that there is no word strong enough to describe the horrific conditions that children in armed conflicts have endured. And it said that a special representative of the Secretary General for Children in Armed Conflict Virginia Gambia and furthermore they continue to say that those who survived will be affected for life with deep physical and emotional scars but we must not let these numbers discourage our efforts and they should serve as an impetus to reinforce our determination to end the uh, and prevent grave violations against children and then this report is a call to action to intensify our work to better protect children in armed conflict and ensure that they are given a real chance to recover and thrive. Mm. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, and you mentioned it earlier in your kind of conditions for when we go into war, this fact that generations after generations will be affected and the children will never really be able to reach their potential. Exactly. And and it's very mm. clear and it's been described this over 1400 years ago. Yeah, over 1400 years ago it's been explained that you know wars will happen of course and this is a part of human nature that uh, you know the worst enemy of human beings is human beings themselves. Not, <laughs> not, not, not animals. Not you know, uh, uh, d- difficult, not dangerous uh, insects. It's it's human beings. Uh, so the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, he taught us that if in case if any war happens, then you know civilians they should not be affected. Uh, only you should do it out of um, uh, you know out of self-defense and and uh, you know you should also look at the the the, mm. the infrastructure as well and even to this extent the holy prophet said that you should not you know cut trees uh, not destroy the houses etc etc so when you look at nowadays wars no one no one you know thinks of these things right. and and the, and the destruction that has caused by these multilateral bombs yeah. that, that that are indiscriminately just let off where people are are completely killed and buildings are destroyed, which completely goes against anything that Islam's fundamental teachings are. Well, we're going to delve more into this, and I'm sure you'll be able to give a lot more examples on this, uh, Zakaria. But what we're going to do is talk to our first guest on the show, which I'm really excited about, is Dr... Vera Nelelki Vaudhausen and it's lovely to be able to speak with the Dr Vera on this subject who is the assistant professor 
of European Literature and Culture at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Close to your home there, uh, Zacharias. Yes, and indeed. It's, uh, I'm from maybe, Belgium. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can ask some questions in Vera's native language as well as I assume that's what it would be. Vera, listen, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the Drive Time Show. And it's uh, amazing for you to be able to. Thank you. You're welcome to the Drive Time Show, Vera, Dr. Vera. Thank you very much for having me. I'm uh, quite intrigued by the potential questions in my own language. (laughs) I know, but we'll have to do some (laughs) translation because most of our listeners, um, although the Voice of Islam is an international station with callers from all over the world who potentially speak numerous languages like my co-host Zakaria does as well, uh, I'm not so... Um, how can I say, academically bright in that way. So anyway, I'll I'll start off with the first question in English and I'll let Zakri answer the next kind of couple questions after that. But the first question from me will be in English anyway. So you you conducted your PhD study on empathy, ethics and justice construction with children's war literature. I mean, can you tell our listeners, you know, what were your findings in this? Yes, so essentially I did focus on English language stories, so I do want to point that out because culturally, of course, uh, the differences can be quite stark. But what I did find is that the extreme setting of war, you know, the high stakes and the um, uh, emotional turmoil that comes Mm. with the territory, uh, it makes them particularly impactful on the children's minds when they're reading it. Because as you read it, you experience those emotions and you go through the um, events that you might not necessarily have gone through, or maybe mm. you do recognize from your own life. Um, and these then impact empathic skills, morality, and justice. So to give like a brief example, yeah. stories with a clear good versus evil or us versus them approach are more likely to create an overly simplified understanding of war where extreme violence and total destruction of the enemy is justified because they're not human like us, but they're evil. Um, whereas children's stories, most of them try to provide nuance. Mm-hmm. And the ones that do that, you know, showing multiple sides of the conflict, mm. um, are more likely to encourage flexible and complex approaches to morality and justice. So you see quite often in the UK uh, stories about World War One, yeah. where Germans are shown to be, you know, people who suffer as well and maybe don't want to be there. And it really encourages the child to think critically. Uh, and they bring this into their normal life as well. It, it doesn't just stay in books. And you grow up with the lessons you learn. Mm. It's very interesting you, you talk about that because when you mention the First World War and then you mention the Second World War and all the conflicts that are happening currently mm-hmm. today, you never can really understand what people are really feeling because you sometimes live in your own world and you can never understand the conflict that's taking place. I mean, we know 10 years ago when Russia uh, took Crimea, Uh, we never really understood what that really meant culturally or what it meant for Russia. And now, 10 years on, we're now seeing a war that's now there they're trying to take the whole country, which for us still Mm. we don't really unable to 
empathize with it because we don't speak the language. I personally, I've not met many Ukrainian people. So having this discussion like we're having today and talking about and understanding it is really crucial. So I just wanted to make that point before Zakaria comes and asks you his next question to you. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Vera, I, I know that you speak Dutch, uh, but of <laughs> course, <laughs> most of our, of our um, listeners, they uh, speak uh, English and they understand English. But hopefully we can get you sometime in one of our uh, uh, shows in Holland uh, yeah. because we have a community uh, in Holland. Um, oh, that sounds exciting! Yeah, so in we'll in put a pin in it. In, in, yes, uh, we will get in contact with you um, yeah. if if that's fine for, uh, with you from the Holland um, community of the Ahmadi Muslim community. Uh, mm-hmm. But looking at the previous literature, what can we learn from uh, history about war and the impact um, in it? It, uh, it, uh, it has. <clears throat> Yeah, so that's quite a big question. But because I focus on children, I, I will focus on education because it's one of the first things that usually suffers through war. Um, and we can see this throughout history. So the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, the, for example, they targeted teachers specifically. And Guatemala's 36-year-long civil war saw a tremendous decrease in national spending on education in favor of spending on defense. And Iraq... Uh, it used to have one of the best education systems in the Middle East before the Gulf War in 1991, where like, the population had a literacy level of 90%. Mm-hmm. But because of the enduring violence within the state and against schools and teachers specifically, this led to a brain drain. So a lot of teachers left or died and students were afraid to go to school. So that literacy level has plummeted. Um, In Afghanistan, um, in the first half of 2006, there were 100 bombing, arson and missile attacks made against educational facilities specifically, and 105,000 children were denied access to education because of this. And, you know, education is not seen as pressing when survival itself is at stake, but rebuilding can take a very long time, Hmm. a lot of money and effort as well. And when children don't have access to education, um, that's a very limiting factor on their lives that will impact them throughout their lives. Um, So I would say equal education for all children should be treated as a priority in rebuilding specifically. Hmm. Speaking on behalf of rebuilding and and uh, uh, how long does it actually last? Looking at the papers and on, on studies on war, uh, the how long are the lasting impacts for children? Yeah, this is also a bit complex because you know uh, children are not a homogenous group. Although in society we often think of them as such, but Factors like gender and economic background, the age of the child, but also the nature of the conflict and the infrastructure present in the country before the conflict all play major roles when it comes to how long the impact lasts and how heavy it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but because children are developing psychologically as well as physically, the experience of war tends to leave a lifelong impact. So disease and malnutrition, they leave their marks for life in the body as well as the brain. And trauma, um, similarly, it can lead to mental health issues down the line, particularly when it's not treated, and it can manifest in self-medicating behaviors or behavioral problems later on. But not only does war have lifelong impacts, it also has uh, 
cross-generational impact. Hmm. You know, children traumatized by war raise their future children based on their own ideologies and experiences and the like. So the impact of war on children is both lifelong for themselves and much longer than that. I mean, really powerful stuff, Vera. I mean, Dr. Vera, it's absolutely amazing. And it kind of makes me feel that this seems to be a tactic for some of the people mm. at war, that if they're going to play the long game and how they're going to win, to destroy the education establishments is one way to keep a society down and not be able to come to the table and be able to understand and you know and, mm-hmm. and, and, and talk. But actually, when you're not educated or you lose that and all you have is one thing on your mind is what you spoke about earlier, the us and them, and it's kind of watered down and it becomes easy to know what side you're on without actually understanding the real problem. I mean, mm-hmm. it does feel that it, it is a tactic for many of these stronger powers that are in conflict. Do you feel that that's the case? Definitely. Well, I wouldn't be able to say definitely, but you Mm. do see particularly in uh, the history of total war uh, and in genocides that um, public infrastructures are often the first attacked. So education Mm. systems would be part of that as well as, you know, hospitals and healthcare, which equally impact children. But removing uh, people from the possibility of, you know, bettering themselves, getting better possibilities and potentials in the future for generations long, absolutely is a tactic. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's a very worrying situation and it's very easy when you start looking at the holistic conflicts around the world. I mean, could we ever imagine a society that would keep our children protected from the impacts of war? So... um, as for children that are in the war zones themselves, I'm, I'm not an expert on that. And there are many people more qualified than I am who've been working on it for a long time. So, for example, you mentioned the report uh, earlier from the UN representative of the Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict. Um, her name is Virginia Gamba, uh, UNICEF as well. Um, they would work on this extensively and focus on you know, education and healthcare, separation from the family and protection from physical and sexual violence, um, which all must be addressed. But it's it, they, the reports also show it's extremely difficult to protect children because elderly people, women and children often suffer the most mm. from war. But as for children who are not in war zones themselves, they can also be impacted by war. Uh, because they hear about it and they get scared and insecure and especially in the digital age children will inevitably gain information about war and they may stumble across shocking or traumatizing imagery or stories and this i do feel more comfortable to speak on um, because the best way to protect children against this is to prepare them and to talk with them about it so in the Netherlands, we had this approach to children called the Heile Kinderwelt, um, which is a romantic approach uh, that childhood is sacred and pure and innocent and children should be protected from the evils of the world. But then World War II happened and the suffering many children went through led to a new approach which mm. favors preparation for the hard parts of life where there's this assumption that children will inevitably experience grief and hopelessness and witness unfairness and experience war in some way. So I would say adopting this approach, you know, providing children with stories about 
difficult topics. Children can experience the bad stuff in a safe way and encounter the world in, with less naivete and vulnerability. Mm. And that's how we can protect uh, children who are not in war zones from, uh, you know, still that experience and the negative impact that it will have on their lives. Excellent. I mean, I, I have one last question for you, but we know the answer because it's quite obvious. But uh, because is there a way, you know, that the war could be avoided? But but actually, from what I know, I don't think so at all. But what I wanted to kind of pick your brain on, you know, the Article 28 of the UN CRC says that children and young people have the right to education no matter who they are regardless of race, mm-hmm. gender, or disability. And if they're in a, a detention center or if they're a refugee, this should still be happening. Education should mm-hmm. um, be there all the time because I, at the moment, can't see in any shape or form how we could avoid a war situation at the moment. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me or not. Uh, yes, unfortunately, yes. So uh, as to can war be avoided, I, I mean experts have been talking about this for for centuries and aeons and i also lean towards skepticism and would say no and i also agree with you that um education in refugee camps and through charity through uh, grassroots uh, organizations or the un should be prioritized also to provide a bit of normalcy uh, for displaced children and that is maybe to end this on a little bit of a hopeful note, because it's not all terrible. Um, for some children, the refugee camps are the first places where they encounter, you know, structured education, mm. because the country where they're from um, maybe hasn't had that infrastructure in a little while, or they come from an oppressed group. Yeah. So there are opportunities um for them to be found at times. Of course, it is a terrible situation, but it's not all bad all the time. Good. Yeah, I, I mean, the the amazing work during Afghanistan before um, the nations walked away, there were mm-hmm. females who were getting an educating, going to university and had a purpose. Mm-hmm. And you're right. So let's also end on a nice positive note, but there's still work going on. But obviously, uh, Dr. Vera, time always catches up on us on this show. Love, We would love to continue talking to you, but uh, we've got quite a lot of other content to get through and we've got some other guests that we're looking forward to also to speak to as well. So really appreciate your insight and the offers there from Zakria that he'll get in touch <laughs> so you can meet yeah. our community up in Holland. Which, uh, yeah, it will be amazing if uh, if they could get in touch with you and... Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, your, well, you have my number. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, we do. Uh, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get in touch with you in, in, uh, from from the uh, community in Holland, hopefully. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Farah, for your time today. Really appreciate it. And, and all the best with the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you're most welcome. So, Dr. Okay, that that was really, again, really powerful stuff. And it's really worrying how you see the situation with young children who we know now are going to not be able to understand how to communicate, talk, have a peaceful society because if if all they know is war and conflict and some of these, I mean one of the 
countries that were mentioned was Congo, Republic of Congo, DRC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I, that's been on the cards ever since when I was growing up. If I look after how many generations have come through, what else do they know? And when you talk about education, the first thing they were done was given a rifle or a gun. To yeah. be able, it's really hard, and I don't know. We're still on the on the card. So, and also, there's lots of new areas of concern. Isn't yeah, there? it's 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 like an ongoing thing. Yeah, um, uh, uh, you uh, mentioned a few countries like Afghanistan, Democratic Republic uh, of Congo, Israel, mm. the occupied Palestinian territory, Somalia, Syria, Yemen. I mean. You know, there is no word strong enough to describe the horrific conditions that children in armed conflict have endured. So, you know, it's it's uh, yeah, you know, it's something that um, I mean, uh, it's a sad fact. It's isn't a it? sad fact, that. and uh, like like uh, Dr. Vera said, it's mm-hmm. this this effect will always stay with the with the children. It, you know, there is no future for them, yeah, un- unless you know someone steps in and then gives them education. But you know. When there is a war happening, the whole country get destroyed, yeah. and uh, they go hundred years back, uh, right. and and it takes very very long to you know come up again. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. And then I, and I, you're right. You know, a hundred years is probably um, an understatement when you look at it. Uh, but no one wants a war. But these kind of other issues that when you talk about, they're you know. It's a sad fact that you can pick up a newspaper today and you can find accounts of abuse and crime against children. And it just seems so sad. And it's awful when you read this. And where is the progress in any of this? And then how do we work towards having a safe upbringing of children? And in 2021, I mean, especially this year, which we obviously won't forget this quickly because whilst on the side of the world where we were still concerned about the pandemic and other two forms of like violation, they showed up really sharp in this in, in this situation, especially in countries like Asia and Africa. There was an increase in abduction, sexual violence, uh, especially including rape. And there was the statistics talk about there was a rise by 20%. And then we, we mentioned earlier about the attacks on schools and hospitals, and that kind of showed an increase as well. And it was obviously compounded by the pandemic. And now mm. there is this alarming statistic that more than 2,800 children were detained for their actual or alleged association with parties to conflict. So they may not even be part of it, just that they've been associating it and making it extremely vulnerable mm. then to this torture I mentioned this sexual violation and other abuses and it's awful I mean we just mentioned that about Ethiopia Mozambique and Ukraine but you can explain a lot more about what's going on in the Ukraine side of things mm. but it, it is to the Secretary General's annual report that this situation is of concern and this is one of the reasons why we have been picking this subject talking about it because it's just the, another layer of of all the conflicts, and especially the most recent conflict we're seeing in Ukraine. Yeah, um, the most recent, uh, of course, most recent uh, uh, conflict that we are seeing mm. at the moment is, of course, in Ukraine. Uh, when the war in Ukraine started, um, you know, every minute n- ninety children were fled Ukraine. Uh, that's a child for every beat of your heart. Wow. 
and five months into the war, humanitarian needs are continuing to multiply as the fighting continues. And of course, children, they continue to be killed, uh, wounded and deeply traumatized by the violence all around them. And, and many have seen things uh, that no child should ever see. And this is something that always stay with them and it will affect, you know, their 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 future. Um, their homes have been hit, their schools have been attacked, along with all the systems that could help them survive. Uh, families are terrified, in shock and desperate for safety. Um, and in in middle of July, uh, a few months ago, no, actually, uh, last month, the yeah. in in middle of it, more than six point two million people were Crikey. intentionally, uh, internally displaced, while more than six point one million refugees from the from Ukraine had registered for temporary protection or similar national protection schemes in Europe, um, and the large scale displacement of people since the war started could have lasting consequences for generations to come. Um, like we discussed earlier, mm. this will affect for generations to come. Uh, but of course, Europe has helped, uh, not just Europe, but America and, 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 the, and the NATO countries. They've helped Ukraine a lot, which is a good sign, yeah. of course. And um, there's many people who have made the effort, travel there, and made lots of sacrifices and countries have been then United Kingdom were one of the first people to assist in arming the Ukraine or at least doing some training or doing what they could. So you look at it from governments to individuals and also, you know, one of the things, again, we'll start bringing it back, when you talk about a little bit more about this, the acts and the sayings of our beloved Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the way he told his uh, army how to behave and when you go to war what you should be doing and only fighting the enemy in front of you and not going out of your way to create situation where you destroy schools hospitals infrastructure roads because the longer lasting effects what our guests are talking about is is in is incredible right yeah i mean this is there's one thing to understand. Um, uh, when we spoke to our first guest today, and uh, when we spoke about the future of the kids and 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 what impact they would have, and that this this is something that will last forever. Their future is pretty much destroyed. Now, when th- th- there is a very interesting incident. Um, and very horrific and a, a very emotional incident um, uh, with the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah upon him. Uh, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, you probably know about the um, the the story of Taif, right? When yes. he went to preach uh, the message of God Almighty about Islam, and uh, he he went there peacefully on his own. But then he was, you know, sent back. He was taunted. He was uh, by the youngsters. Uh, he was told that, you know, he was stoned by the youngsters of that uh, of Taif, right? Um, and he was bleeding from top till the bottom. So he was, his his shoes were, you know, filled with with um, with blood. And at that moment, at that moment, 
Avram Mercy, the angels, they said um, um, that if you want, I can crash this this uh, you know this uh, this place between the two mountains that were surrounding them, right? And uh, and and they could do it, of course, immediately. And um, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that you know, look, this is like a like a you know he could have taken revenge right uh because of the attack um but he said no i don't want them i don't want you to mm. destroy them who knows maybe their future generations will accept the religion of islam the religion of god almighty right so yeah. this type of thought he had i mean imagine when it comes to war what you know how he avoided casualties of uh, civilians how he tried to save civilians and uh, like you said you know the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him uh whenever he used to go to wars he used to order the men um that you should not um fight against women you should not fight against the elderly and uh, not the children not the not not the the people who are disabled or not able to fight um so you, and of course he also said that you know don't you know kill the animals don't um uh, you know destroy the trees etc etc so all these things are actually a lesson for us all not just muslims but a lesson for us all that um we should um uh, you know when when wars happen you should respect uh the future of that of of the people of that you know yeah. you should uh, the war is not uh something that um it's you shouldn't take it personal you should not you should respect the future generations yeah. of the people you fight yeah, well, well said and it's a fantastic I- example that you gave there about the life of the holy prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him so just as we come nearing to the end of this conversation we have our last guest on the show today and it's a great pleasure for us to have Dr. Alexander, who's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Warwick, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Alexander Smith to the Drive Time Show. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, good to be here. Oh, thank you very much. It's um, it's a really interesting and obviously a thought-provoking and a sad situation we're in, especially with this report that's been written and that's one of the reasons why we are uh, discussing this i mean the un report from the children and arm um, conflict you know it's that was released in 2021 has has made some alarming facts for us but um whilst being aware of the global impact the war on the world i mean why is this still happening i mean i know we asked this question of dr kelly earlier and just saying you know is Sorry, Dr. Vera earlier saying, you know, is there a way that the war could be avoided? And both of her and us were in the agreement that probably can't. But it is still happening, isn't it? And we know it's all wrong. Yeah, you, you mean wars in general? Yeah, and the fact yeah. it has happened children as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, you know, war is evil. There's no doubt about that. And um, and everyone will, will say that, whether they're advocating peace or advocating war but um but the reasons why war continues to happen are very complex i mean i think uh, you know war has been part of human history for hundreds thousands of years 
but we do seem to be living through a time when um, the world seems a lot less safe um, uh, than than some of us may have thought um, two, three, four decades ago. Um, ironically enough, given that uh, four decades ago we had the Cold War, of course, um, between the Soviet Union and the United States. But I think you know what what um, creates this sense of instability, or, mm. or at least a high risk of war at the moment, is it seems to me that um, you know we have a number of threats around um, global warming and inequality, economic, economic and social inequalities in the world, um, a, a um, uh, pressure on diminishing resources in many parts of the country, in many parts of the world where people are very vulnerable, um, and um, that's not to mention, you know, some of the kind of ideological or imperial, imperial or religious or nationalistic yeah. um, ideologies that might be feeding into things as well. So, I think. Uh, uh, even if we can sort of take an individual conflict somewhere and explain it in terms of various factors, whether they be sociological or otherwise, yeah. um, uh, there does seem to be a sort of a general sense that we're only going to see a higher risk of war as uh, as global warming continues to have a, have an impact on the world's most vulnerable um, and uh, around the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really uh, interesting the way you say this. You know, you talk about not only the way the global warming is happening, the resources that are happening, even if we just look at our logistics around the world and what we're dependent on. Yeah. Uh, we had Pelosi, um, the third most powerful person in America, go and visit Thailand. And that's where all of the semiconductors that we use around the world are being produced. So how does that then affect us? But the, the, you also mentioned about religion and you also mentioned that people feel unsafe now living in in this country do you think that religion needs to play a bigger responsibility in solving this kind of conflict that we have because how else can countries resolve their issues um and not being able to go to war i mean if you looked at the teachings of all the major religions around the world don't they sure. just teach peace well, I agree with you, <laughs> but, but as you as you uh, as you will no doubt know, um, not all religious leaders uh, preach peace. Um, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, I think. Uh, so, my my personal view, and, mm. and a lot of what I'm saying today is really a personal view informed by, you know, the, my academic sure. um, work. Um, but my personal view is that, you know, all religions um, have kind of two faces, and and one and they they can play to their better selves, or they can they can play to their better face, if you like, mm. um, and preach, um, you know, the the virtues that are actually common to all the major religions. Since you're saying peace being you know the primary virtue, um, treating your fellow man with respect, etc. Yeah. Um, and then of course there are those who um, you know view the world through a kind of a religious um, uh, prism where um, you know it's us and them there are you know for, there, there are those who belong and there are those who don't belong and you know um, those of other religions don't belong and and they preach a um, a, a, a theology of um, intolerance and, mm. uh, and 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 uh, and and a kind of a, a worldview that feeds into a dehumanizing of people um, so that people who don't look like us um, are not really human and 
I think uh, so. I, I have great respect for all religious leaders yeah. who preach those um, those uh, those traditions of peace within, yeah. within religion. So, um, so I do think there is a role for religion in, in solving these conflicts, but you know, too often those voices become marginalised. Yeah, I mean, w- one of the challenges that we've had as a community, the Ahmadi Muslim community, is about stopping World War Three. And our current leader, who is the um, leader of our community, his name is Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed Malabi's helper, has been championing this idea of peace. And he's written, in an, and there's an open book about it as well, to all of the world leaders and and leaders of faith to come to the table and stop trying to create war or work come to the table and and you know get on a table of peace and, and and tolerance so there are leaders around the world that are trying desperately to solve this problem but there are still too many people in power once they're in power do anything they can to stay in power um, you are you answer this question about people are different look different sometimes they dehumanize people as well so we've done a a lot of support for our ukraine brothers who are in europe and it's very obvious the amount of support that's been given to them how can we show similar support to countries like in middle east such as the yemen or syria of the same kind of level that we're seeing today in ukraine is it that they're different? Is it that they they are not the same um, in in the way they the religious belief their their politics has done? How, how do you resolve that? That well, that's, that's the toughest question you've asked me so far. <laughs> um, but it is the the most you know in some ways it's the most important question. You know, what you're really talking about is how we overcome that failure of imagination as a society to identify with people um, in other societies who live their lives very differently to ourselves um, and who we might sort of struggle to imagine us walking in the shoes of. Um, So, you know, people in Yemen, um, a conflict that's not particularly well understood here in mainstream British society, I think, Um, Syria too, but, um, but Yemen especially. Um, uh, you know, how do we overcome that, that failure to understand, you know, what's firstly what's happening in the conflict? Because I'm sure that if you grabbed anybody in the street and asked them what's the Yemen conflict all about, they wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah. And secondly, um, uh, how to then um, build that sense of empathy with the victims of that conflict. Mm. Um, so, um, I mean, U- Ukraine in some ways is a much more understandable conflict for Europeans because, you know, it has the a, a common, it has a familiar enemy in the form of Putin and Russia, yeah. um, you know, which, which, you know, fits into a long um, uh, uh, tradition in, um, in European thought about where the threats to Europe come from. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have a very sort of straightforward narrative about a democratic nation trying to build self-determination, etc., mm. um, fighting away. So, so that's kind of an easy narrative for Europeans to, to understand. But in terms of that kind of compassion that you're looking for, where we just understand that, you know, women and children and uh, vulnerable people in a city in Yemen um, that's getting bombed are just as deserving um, of the kind of support we've given people in Ukraine yeah. in the same situation, that's you know that's a much more 
sadly, it's a much more difficult yeah. um, quality to get to. I, I, I agree, and there's so much more I want to talk to you about. If you're happy, we'd like to keep you on until after the news and ask you a couple more questions. Okay, okay sure. Yeah, I mean, just on, on that reflection, just as we go to the, the news, the situation in Yemen, like, do we know who they are, but do we even know who the people of Ukraine are? But actually, yeah. because it's Europe... And because it's Asia, but does do the leaders in Asia need to take a responsibility like the the nations in Europe have done for Ukraine? Does the yeah. Middle East leaders have to do the same for what happened in Iraq, um, Yemen, and are they failing? I you know there there is an issue there that yeah. needs to be resolved. So why do people have to look at Europe? Anyway, here is the news, uh, the five o'clock news, but you know we'll have a lot more to discuss with Dr. Alexander oh. Smith. Thank you very much. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show. And we didn't play the longer kind of introduction to the top of the hour because we have um, very fortunate to have Dr. Alexander Smith with us who agreed to hold on for the news as well because we were really getting into a fantastic discussion Discussion about the topic that we're talking about with the conflict of children who are suffering in war. So, Dr. Alexander Smith, who is the Associate Professor of Psych- Sociology at the University of Warwick, was finishing off answering one of my questions about the situation of the comparison between how we treat countries um, in Europe and Yemen and was a fantastic answer very well thought out and really appreciate that so just want to finish off with two more questions that Zakaria had had ready for you uh, Dr. if you allow us to ask you those two questions um, um, uh, Dr. Alexander this is Zakaria I, I hope you can under- uh, you can uh, um, hear us um, yes, I can. okay thank you so um, th- 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 as a society um, what role can we play in order to protect uh, the women and especially the children during wars because as a nation or, or as a, a, as a continent europe is helping ukraine or you know some other continents are helping their uh, countries in in the continent but as a society what play what what role can we play to protect women and especially the children during the wars yeah i mean you know unfortunately there's there's um that the bulk of the responsibility for how we could help is really with governments and with um, with nations, really. So um, avoiding going to war in the first place is obviously the most important way that one can help protect women and children and other vulnerable people during war. But uh, but if if nations do go to war and um, and there's and we don't have those sorts of options available to us to to improve the situation. Um, you know, I, I suggest that we do the things that I'm, I'm sure many people are already doing. Um, just do more of it. So, you know, supporting refugees, supporting the charities mm. um, that are seeking to um, help women and children in, the, in these in these conflict areas. I mean, one, one thing that I think is worth thinking about as well is, um, in addition to the the um, obvious and immediate trauma that. Um, that violence um, brings to um, to everybody um, is the aftermath of war as well. So mm. you know when when veterans return home from war, for example, mm. um, the trauma they bring back with them to their families. Um, 
And I, I know this because my grandfather, who flew in um, the, the RAF during the Second World War, he's a bomber pilot, and he came back okay. from the war with PTSD and other things, and, and that had an impact on his children as well. Mm-hmm. So they, there really is kind of no easy answer. To, that there's, no, there's no way of sort of protecting the vulnerable in a way that then makes war acceptable, yeah. if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, cool. there's, there's all sorts of damage that's done. Um, however, um, uh, however you, you sort of cut it, but, um, but I think, you know, supporting refugees, supporting the charities, supporting humanitarian aid, supporting efforts for ceasefires where they look like they, they might be able to be secured. I mean, all of these are the important kind of local level initiatives that, um, that need to happen all the time, unfortunately. Mm. Mm, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, this type of support is that which is needed to protect um, instead of um, what I think providing um, uh, you know weapons to escalate more I mean there's the the peace talks is the way uh, that you can stop wars but not by you know I mean telling that okay carry on with the war Uh, so personally I think that you know the way you answered is uh, perfectly the way we should protect and and uh, safeguard and uh, the 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 vulnerable especially women and children Um, and similarly um, connecting with the question previous question what role can global leaders and politicians Mm -hmm. play in order to maintain peace in this world Yeah, so <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about that, um, about that particular question since uh, you shared the questions with mm. me beforehand. And um, I think one of the real tragedies at the moment is there seems to be a breaking down of global norms um, about how to work through differences of opinion. Um, so if you think of when the Cold War ended and we had a number of kind of um, international treaties around um, uh, the, um, the dismantling of nuclear weapons and arsenals and things like that, um, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the efforts towards um, reducing nuclear um, stockpiles around the world have faltered and then stalled in the last um, decade. Um, and now we have, um, in the case of China and the U.S. over Taiwan, we have China now saying that they're going to withdraw from, you know, cooperating with the U.S., yeah. which will presumably impact upon this particular issue too. And likewise with climate change and these sorts of things. It does seem to be at the moment a sort of a, a readiness amongst um, quite a lot of global leaders. Um, not, not all global leaders, but global leaders with um, militaries and nuclear arsenals and resources that count, you know, that, that can make a difference in the wider world. Mm. Um, there does seem to be a readiness to sort of break away from some of these kind of global uh, global norms. Um, now, I'm not saying those global norms always work beautifully. They certainly don't. But um, but you would think that the, the first um, primary commitment of all, of all nations participating in a in a kind of a United Nations kind of forum would be to settle differences without going to the battlefield. And that particular commitment um, seems to seems to be valued much less at the moment um, mm, 
um, I think. So I do think we're living through very dangerous times um, and, uh, and very, very sad and tragic times for the people who are caught in these conflicts. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alexander Smith, for your time today, and thank you for staying on um, till the second hour of our show. But it was really important for us to uh, listen to what you had to say, and uh, we really appreciate your insight into this subject. And uh, again, you know, hopefully we'll be able to speak to you again when we cover this subject. Absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. You're you're most welcome. Thank you, Doctor. Okay. Thank you. So exactly that was um, you know kind of ending our kind of show for the first um, hour, but it, it is really important, especially you mentioned it earlier, how Islam you know proactively worked to reduce the conflict that affected children, vulnerable families in this war, and if we could just follow the same suit, we would definitely be in a much better situation. But obviously, time's caught up against us. We'll, we'll kind of um, end there we'll take a very short break and we'll be with you instantaneously thank you very much a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of islam with the voice of islam Okay, welcome back. That was a, a, a very short break. We're probably very not used one. to those very short uh, breaks. But anyway, now going into our second subject uh, of the hour today. And this is kind of related because a lot of the first hour was discussion about the effects of, of children and, and the trauma and the ethics uh, of what we need to go through. Because, again, this is a similar situation relating to young children as well. And this subject is about students' exclusion and should pupils be expelled? And this is the question that we're also asking on our social media as well. And you can get in touch with those and some of you have already responded to that, which we'll be reading out. But if you want to just give us a call as well, you can call us on 0208-687-7878. And obviously, get in touch through our normal social media platforms. And our handle is always at Voice of Islam UK although we have a drive time one as well but you're more than welcome to do both but it's really powerful this subject and we've got some excellent guests joining us today we've got school teachers we've got motivational speakers and we've got a mother of a disabled child as well who completely understand the challenges that we're facing today so in today's show we are going to be discussing why there is a need to expel students from school and what other alternatives teachers head teachers can use instead of expulsion so exactly you know just before we get into the meat of this subject and i just want to read out a verse from the holy quran if you can just let us know what kind of comments we've had already from this because in verse to chapter 206 in the holy quran it says and when he is in authority he runs about in the land to create disorder and in it and destroy the crops and the progeny of man and allah loves not disorder hmm. and here in the person in authority is the teacher and where it is their job to create a suitable environment for the pupils to study in there is this council called South Southwark Council that has decided to be the first in all of the local authorities of the United Kingdom not to exclude students for behaving 
badly, but instead trying to find the reason why students might have behaved the way they do. And it's really interesting with some of the comments that yeah. have come through. Kind of understand this point and don't, right? Right. Yeah. I mean,、uh, the question which we were asking in、uh, our Voice of Islam、uh, Instagram story is:、yep. Should school stop expelling disruptive students?、Uh, very interesting、uh, answers we've had、um, from Nabahat Neira.、Uh, she says yes. From F A one three Z. Double A says no. Keep removing bad pupils. Need consequences.、Yeah. Uh, from Nas one three one zero says yes and be taught in smaller groups in mainstream schools rather than pupil referral units.、Um, from Q underscore B seven six seven five six says yes. So、um, just one no. The rest of them yes. So.、Um, Uh, interesting uh, answers.、Um, we'll keep waiting for other answers as well. But yeah, you know, we can we can see that、uh, we've got mixed answers, not、yeah. only one side. So hopefully, by the end of the show today, we'll be able to be a lot more informed and trying to understand what is the best right. And if Southwark Council have who have been who have decided to. Not exclude students、uh, who are behaving badly, but trying a different alternative. And let's see, you know, what our listeners、um, come up with, or they agree with us or not. But there are some really alarming statistics, aren't they? I mean, there's a report from the government UK, which was published on the 28th of July this year in 2022, and it showed that there were 3,900 permanent. Exclusions in the 2021 academic year, and this is over 1,000 permanent exclusions, lower than in 2019-2020 uh, academic year when there were 5,100 permanent exclusions, and around half the number of permanent exclusions in the last full academic year before the academic, and it was 7,900. So it's Progressively going down, so maybe people are kind of working in moving in that direction. And there were three thousand three hundred fifty-two thousand five hundred suspensions in twenty twenty-one's academic year, and in an increase from the previous year, where it was three hundred ten thousand seven hundred suspensions occurred. But it's still lower than the pre-pandemic levels, which was four hundred thirty-eight thousand three hundred in 2018-2019. What that that was a bit of a mouthful of statistics, but、mm. I'm sure people will get the the gist of what we're trying to say to see. And you know that even though there was a permanent exclusions that have decreased from the year before, suspensions have increased, but both being still higher. Number of children getting expelled or missing out on education, and talking in Islam, how important is education put on in individuals? And I always ask you this question because people associate Afghanistan as a Muslim country. I mean, when you look at the way they behave, this got nothing to do with Islam, right? No, I mean, I don't think that there is any country in the world that is fully、uh, following. The Islamic teachings.、Yeah. Um, so we cannot, you know, take a country and say that they are fully 
following the Islamic religion. It's not even Saudi Arabia where they're extremely <laughs> uh, strict. Uh, they even, you know, cut the hand if someone steals and all these things. But, you know, it, can, it cannot apply these rules unless and until everyone understands of that country mm. the treatings of the Quran. Yeah. No, no country... You know, you can say that 100% they have read the Quran and they understand it. No. So, um, of course, we can't, we cannot, you know, say that Afghanistan or any other country yeah. is uh, a, a, an example of, um, you know, being the, uh, being an Islamic country, yeah. right? True Islamic country. But like you said, um, Islam emphasizes on learning on 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 teaching and and the first word and we've discussed this mm. many many times in in our show uh, but it is an interesting fact the first revelation that the holy prophet uh, muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him uh, has ha- has received is iqra which means read which means read uh, and learn so from this moment onwards when you will read, when we, you will convey the message, right? Mm. Your followers will read and learn not yeah. just about Islam, but about everything, because the Holy Quran is about the whole world. Yeah, and 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 that's the kind of point that I want to make, because obviously our listeners are so varied, and they come from a background that isn't an Islamic background. They they come from uh, United Kingdom, around the world, which probably have not even understood what Islam is all about. So we kind of go a little bit heavy on some parts of the subject, but usually we're not that heavy. We're much lighter trying to discuss perspectives on it. Because, it, But it's important that people do recognize that the religion Islam is all about peace and tolerance and its core message is one to, to worship God, but actually the most second point is to serve humanity and how yeah. do you serve humanity is through one example, is through education, through schools, hospitals. The reason why I kind of also ask you a question before we get into the meat of this is because we just came out of a weekend of our Jalsa Salana. Oh, yes. And on that day, there is a moment um, on both days where children are awarded trophies and they're given special prizes for their academic achievements. And this yeah. is both our young boys and our young girls. And some of our boys and, and girls are also adults because they've been studying PhD. And therefore, the emphasis globally, worldwide, is there. Hmm. So, education is really important. It is. But there are real reasons as to why um, exclusions take place, isn't it? Yeah, there are, you know, reasons why these exclusions happen, uh, these suspensions happen. Yeah. According to the government statistics, statistics uh, the top reasons for children to be excluded from uh, the primary school, either on a fixed term or permanent basis, are um, uh, persistent disruptive behavior or physical assault against an adult or physical assault against a pupil um, or even verbal abuse or threatening behavior against an adult or verbal abuse or threatening behavior against a pupil or any type of damage that they uh, have caused or, you know, bullying. Of course, these things, um, you know, they are uh, behavior that is not acceptable. Um, And, of course, the children, they are still in a learning process. And there are also some reasons why students might have behaved the way they do 
and teachers as well as parents are being urged to look uh, in you know some of the reasons mm. uh, but um, you know these reasons uh, we will be discussing um, uh, afterwards yeah. because we have uh, our first guest for this hour uh, Saeed Nazir uh, who is a, a secondary school physics teacher mm. um, and he's been teaching for uh, the last eight years. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to our show. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Welcome, uh, Mr. Saeed, and thank you very much for joining us. Um, as a teacher, what are your opinions on excluding students, and in what way do you see do you see it help uh, the school? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And I was listening to your uh, brief introduction yeah. of uh, the exclusions and the government statistics. Um, to me, it is the correct thing, and mm. as it is a as it is a consequence of the extreme behaviour. Um, now, um, exclusion is not taken lightly in schools. It's not just a one-off thing that a kid does, and you know, uh, the kid will be excluded straight away. Um, uh, even in the extreme circumstances, uh, there are. Uh, different things in place where uh, children's past is monitored as well. So, for example, it could be a situation where um, somebody has uh, bullied a child or has been abusive to an adult, but maybe it is one off and it's the first time, so that child would not be excluded straight away. Um, there is an, a system in place in schools where um, kids' behavior is monitored since uh, the time they enter the school. So, you know, um, such things are taken seriously and they are not just one-off. Yes, obviously, um, they are, as as you mentioned earlier, persistent disruptive behaviour mm-hmm. uh, as terminology that you use. And persistent is when they have been doing it for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. All the interventions in the school have taken place and, and the child is not positively uh, reflecting on his behaviour and not making a good impact. Then is where... There's two types of exclusions we take, and one of the exclusions we're taking is obviously a short period of time we exclude the child from the school. Mm-hmm. So, the reason behind exclusion is, of course, to um, to safeguard the other students as well, so that they can they do not get involved or uh, affected by you know by these students, I guess. Um, but how do you think schools can better themselves with the approach of uh, excluding a student? I mean, I know they're trying their best to improve. And, um, you know, we also mentioned about Southwark Council, where they, um, you know, this decided the to be the first local authority in the UK not to exclude students. But if the schools have to decide... Um, so how can they better themselves with the approach of exclusion? I think it, it varies from school to school and setting to setting because um, different schools would have a, a different uh, uh, type of children that will be coming depending on which area the school is in. So the behaviour policies also vary. Uh, to me, I think it should be consistent behaviour policy across the country um, and not varying from school to school because then you would have... a a good way of approaching uh, such situations. But again, I think exclusion, as I said to you earlier, is for extreme cases and not just for normal misbehavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are systems in place in schools. I'll give an example of my school, for example, 
if any child misbehaves, there's a system of uh, a green stamp and a red stamp. Um, so a warning is given to a child to begin with. Um, then the child is given a red stamp. And if the child continues with persistent behavior, the child is sent to reflection uh, for a day where he is out of uh, the lessons and his, and his social time so that he can reflect and come back. Uh, but again, I mean, reflection is not just, you know, uh, it, 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 on extreme cases where uh, there is a threat to a child or a child has done something uh, that can uh, harm uh, someone in the school. That's yep. when the exclusions are, are put in place. Hmm. Interesting. Just explain then in more detail, what's the difference between exclusions and suspensions? Okay, so um, again, uh, Basically, there are two types of exclusions. Obviously, the short-term exclusion, yeah. which would be classed for five days, with which the child is, is, is asked to go home for five years. But again, in those five days, the responsibility of the school to to provide um, uh, the education to the child as well. So teacher's responsibility, legal responsibility for a teacher to send work for five days. And again, the child is um, given uh, five days to reflect on his behavior uh, and when the child comes back, there are obviously interventions in place where uh, there is a uh, constant coaching and, and okay. parents are involved where uh, the child um, gets back into school uh, in, a, in a slow process where he, he is, again, you know, as, you know improving his behaviour sure. as well. And, and does it uh, improve their behaviour then? Do they, do they come back to class better behaved? Yes, again, I'm, as I'm saying to you, you know, uh, ex- exclusions again for uh, is is for an extreme circumstances. Again, uh, when when parents are involved, when when the coaching are done mm. in normal circumstances, you know, with smaller misbehavior issues, yeah. the children do reflect positively, yeah. and 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 they they move on and they understand uh, what went wrong, and uh, it, it does it does create a, a better. Yeah. Uh, you know, reflection on child's behaviour as well. That's brilliant. Well, really appreciate your time today and thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure to be able to speak to you and listen to your insight and thanks you for answering our questions as well. And um, Brilliant. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Bye for now. So that was um, Said Nazir, as uh, Zakaria introduces, a secondary school physics teacher. Uh, and he's been a teacher for over eight years. So he obviously Zakaria knows what he's talking about, right? Yeah, Through his experience. Yeah. So his experience, uh, um, a teacher, of course. Um, before um, we were discussing yeah. about um, reasons of, of exclusion or suspensions, yeah. uh, we also mentioned uh, um, seven, eight points. Um yeah. And there are also some reasons why students might ha- behave the way they do. Um, and the teachers as well as parents, they're being urged to look at these reasons. Yeah. Now, the first reason is uh, mental health issues. Um, it's, it's shockingly half of all children who are excluded from school have a recognized mental health need. Um, and this can affect their behavior. For example, a child with anxiety uh, anxiety might be prone to angry outbursts in the classroom. Mm. The second reason is um, uh, a special educational needs. Uh, children with special education needs uh, may have difficulties with the school environment, which can make their behavior challenging. 
The third one is the social deprivation. So the children who are excluded are four times as likely to come from disadvantaged families or go to school in a deprived area. And lastly, the fourth reason is a personal problem. Um, whether it's a divorce, a bereavement or even a new sibling, sometimes upheaval at home can affect uh, the children's behavior mm. um, and, 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 um, and, and lead it to them being excluded from school. And this is quite, you know, this is seen quite often that, you know, these, these kind of behavior, uh, um, it's, it's because, you know, there's something happening at home yeah. and, and uh, uh, we don't really know what the issue is unless, you know, we contact the parents and... and yeah, I mean, it's really worrying that, um, I mean, parents or teachers are already dealing with classrooms way beyond the size that they should be. Yeah. So not only are they teaching, they are also looking after the welfare of the students as well. Hmm. And sometimes they're also checking on have they eaten properly? Are they wearing the same clothes coming in? Are they checking for bruises, checking for... Um, puberty issues, everything related. So they're, they're more these days becoming social workers as they are. But actually what we really need to get to point is it's not an obvious easy thing to do to exclude a, a child because what we really need to be doing is looking at the wider issues hmm. that are available uh, to look at and to understand. But you can understand the challenges that the teachers have anyway with all the cutbacks that are coming through through education, mm. through teachers are just leaving the profession. Yeah, uh, It's similar to the NHS. We've got over 100, more than 150,000 vacancies. People do not want to be in the industry because the teachers are under so much pressure. So if they're under pressures, how can they then look at the, some of the reasons why students are behaving the way they are. Yeah. So it's a bigger, wider problem that mm. needs to be resolved. But the fact that you've mentioned these and, and you recognize them is important in itself. And these are the things that we need to kind of dwell on and, and talk to and also understand. But just as we get into that more detail, we'll be talking to our next guest who has joined us today is Garvin Snell. And Garvin Snell is a motivational speaker and also has a community interest company and does lots of great work in the community. And you might have already heard or even watched the video that was done in No Shame in Running. So Garvin, you know, I've seen the the video that you put together and it had worldwide recognition, but actually it was also about the issues about um, anti-knife crime as well, which you work very very heavily involved with that as well. Um, Garvin, thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good to hear from you again. Um, yeah. Garvin, can you just ex just explain what it is that you do and what is your role? I've kind of hinted in it in your introduction, but actually it goes way beyond that, doesn't it, really? Yeah. Well, I've been a youth and community worker for many, many years now, over 20 years. I've, uh, mm. I've worked in the education department uh, for Hounslow Borough, so I've worked in all the schools across the borough, every single one at one point. Um, no Shame in Running came about by accident, by sheer fluke, to be honest. Um, it was back in 2018. I was at home with my son, 
and unfortunately another b- bad news has come on the television about another young person that stabbed and killed. So I just simply asked my son, what would you do if someone pulled out a knife at you? And he was 13 at the time and he was like, well, I'll try and fight them when I grab it. And I said, no, just run. That just gave me the idea. So we went into the garden and said, right, we're going to do a little um, self-defense sem- demonstration on how to defend yourself against a knife attack. Yeah. So uh, I proceeded to pull out a knife, as you do what you've done, and he then turned around and ran away. Hmm. And hence the term no shame running was born, and we've just gone on from strength from there. It's interesting that when your son, when you brandished your knife towards him, he ran... Um, it, but it had an, it had a profound effect on many people who watched that video. What what mm-hmm. is it that that actually got them really excited by it? It was a lot of people was, was expecting some kind of martial arts move or some kind <laughs> of karate move, some kind of technique to take it off. But way also simple. It was only a thirty yeah. second video, and my son was quite caught tall. I'm quite a, a big fella, and then. Yeah. Um, we just simply just turned and run away and it was like there's no shame running away i think that was like you know what that's such a simple video but it's so true yeah. get a distance is the best way to uh, defend yourself yeah excellent um so i just wanted to, we you know the subject that we're talking about today is like student exclusion and should mm-hmm. pupils be expelled and as you with your experience of working with many schools do you think in your opinion that students um should be excluded from school? It's a tough one. I don't think they should because mm. if you look at the stats, um, what is it, something like between 70 and 80% of people in prison that were excluded from school. So I also, in one of my other roles, I sit on the um, board of governors at a junior school. And one of the things that I try to avoid doing is permanently, permanently excluding young people. Mm. That's why um, my organisation, No Shame in Running, that's why we work with a lot of schools to try and fill in that gap. With a lot of young people that are on the verge of exclusion, we can give them a bit of respite from school, from the normal day-to-day school routine, and see if we can help them change their, their mindset and their views yeah. by coming out of school, coming down to the Hamworth Community Centre or coming down to the, one of the other projects that we run at the State Rugby Club and see if we can try and make them realise their potential and change their mindsets rather than going down the exclusion route than going to a, a yeah. pupil referral. Yeah, I, 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 just before Zuckery comes and asks you some questions, you, you mentioned the Hanworth Community Centre. I mean, I've been there and it's quite fascinating when you get the kids, um, and this is both male and female, they come with their parents, they can do a bit of boxing, they release mm-hmm. some energy, they can do some weights and then you sit down with them and you coach them. So, you know, the, the the work you do within the community is outstanding. So I just wanted to just say that because, uh, you know, you're, you're being very modest there, uh, Garvin. So anyway, over to you, Zucker. You can just go and ask your questions. Uh, yeah, Garvin, um, in relation to school exclusions, how do you help students um, who have been excluded from the school? So before they get to the point of exclusion, we've got a program called Evolve. Um, Evolve is run at the Hanworth Community Centre. So what we do there is we contact the schools who can identify the young people that are on the verge of exclusion or going down that route or may have been excluded before Mm -hmm. um, but maybe on the verge of being permanently excluded. We've even got referrals from the police, from uh, other youth uh, and other um, youth services. But we try and 
that gap before they go, that area before they go into getting permanently excluded, we try and provide a service where the young people can get away from the school, get away from their normal um, their normal friendship circle. Mm. We can try a new sport, boxing, kickboxing, rugby, football, basketball, as like a tool to try and mentor and try and get through. And we, we have many different workshops and we do many different talks in schools, colleges and universities as well around youth violence, knife crime, motivation, trying to get young people to, to see their self-worth. I was going to say we, we, we always see there's a, a very close relation between uh, poverty and crime hmm. Okay. So in, in some of the um, areas that have a lot more um, sorry um, a lot more benefits in that, in that area a lot more poverty in that area you tend to find crime rate is a, is a lot higher and a, young, a lot of young people tend to follow that trend and go down that road and what differences do you see in those students who come to you what changes do they make in themselves uh, from from the start when you meet them and and uh, afterwards well with a lot of the young people it's not just from the um, young people themselves but people that work with them their teachers and their parents yeah. um, in terms of their attitude and having a better outlook on their lives because in our sessions that we, we do, we're not just telling them, look, this is wrong, this is bad, or whatever. We try and make them have an idea on what they want to do in life and where they want to go and how we can help them get there. Hmm. Because a lot of our uh, sessions that we've been doing, because No Shame in Running has uh, been, been uh, about for two years now, but the people that work within the team, Siobhan, Darren, and the rest of the team, we've had a lot of life experience going over 20 years. Yeah. So with a lot of the young people that we work with, our programs are normally 12 to 13 weeks, but it doesn't just end there. These are ongoing uh, programs. You, you can't change someone's life, not all the time within such a short period. You, you need a longer time to, to mentor and to get them to understand their potential. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it's a quite long program, 13 weeks, and there's a lot of time and effort, and you've got a team around you. But, you know, this is not an easy thing to carry on because obviously you need funds as well. I mean, h- how do you raise funds for your organisation? This is the, the key with all different organisations mm. like this. We were lucky in the first instance um, throughout lockdown there was a com- thriving community fund which uh, we was lucky to um, get some funding from that from the, the local council. We've also got some funding from MOPAC as well and also from the, the local police as well. But this is our constant battle. Because yes, we are a charity, and uh, we we try to do things as cheap as possible. But the people within that charity, they still have families and roofs over their heads and everything like that to pay. So it's a constant battle of getting donations. Yeah. And last year we we went out and did a no shame in running challenge where throughout the course of um, uh, the month of uh, February it was or March, yeah. we went out running. So each person that was doing that challenge um say gave themselves say like 80k that they would run and would get sponsorship yeah and all that so to raise money for that so that is our constant battle yeah. is raising money for these projects which are very much needed yeah sure i mean just before we end there i'd let you give a quick shout out so you know if someone wants to get in touch with you garvin how do they do it the most really the easiest thing to do is to go onto my twitter page garvin snell yeah garvin snell 
um, to go on our, our Twitter page, and from there it can lead to our, all our information around uh, no shame in running. Yeah, awesome. All right, listen, Garvin, thanks for your time today, and uh, your contribution to the the subject that we're talking about today. All the best. No worries. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. Bye for now, Garvin. Bye. So that's Garvin Snell, a motivational speaker and no shame in running, and also the founder of Anti-Knife Crime Activists. And uh, I thought uh, that was really good, a really good insight into hmm. ha- how people can behave and, and kind of the, the mentoring program that he's been doing. Because you mentioned earlier uh, about some of the challenges that people have, don't they, where students might want to get into this situation you, mm. you mentioned about mental health issues are, are really important and then the special education needs and and the social deprivation and and the personal problems as well so that kind mm. of really feeds well into that kind of comments you made earlier mm-hmm. i mean the holy quran also you know speaks about uh, this situation in chapter f- uh, 49 verse 12 where God Almighty says that, O ye who believe, let not one people deride another people who may be better than they, nor let woman deride another woman who may be better than they, and defay not your own people, mm. nor call, call one another by nicknames. Bad indeed is evil reputation after the profession of belief, and those who repent not are the wrongdoers. I mean, you know this verse um shows that instead of judging mm. uh, the students on their behavior you know find out what the reasons yeah. uh, are why they behave like this and what can be done to try and prevent their behavior um from from becoming disruptive what are what are the issues you know how can we uh, help them and this is how you can you know improve their the state of you know mm. uh, whatever their state yeah. you know problems that they're going through by understanding them by speaking to them and and the elderly as yeah. well. Okay. I think it's really important that you're right. Um, and again, I'll labour the point. You used to have many schools dedicated teachers that were there purely just for the welfare of mm-hmm. students, and because of all of the challenges that people have, head teachers with their budgets, a lot of these roles have gone or they've been given the responsibility by the teachers themselves rather than have a dedicated person so it's important that we need to go back to that and also the relationship that the police have with the schools having dedicated officers that purely are there just to liaise and have contributions from the schools so they know and there are situations where you've got kids mucking around Mm. And you see them on their bikes, you saw them causing a lot of hassle. And the police officer has a relationship with that school and knows the children because he's been there. And then as soon as they see that police officer, they think, right, okay, we better stop because he knows my parents. So it's all of that relationship, the community policing is going. And it's a problem that we have today. Hmm. So we've got to work harder because there are some effects on the exclusion of students, isn't it? You mentioned earlier about it can cause mental health. You you said that they, the reason for it, because they could have mental health, but yeah. then the fact if they get excluded, it could even create further problems with, with mental health. It is, yeah. And also it can create the situation of 
social isolation as well, especially for many young people. The places where they meet their friends and hang out with them, and when they're excluded, they can suddenly feel completely cut off, although they've got yeah. a little bit of um, connections. But mm. there, there's so many others, right? Yeah, there's so many others. For example, uh, it, it it can encourage negative behavior. Um, those who struggle with school exclusion can be a relief. They may also feel feel it. Um, um, you know, it gets them out of the unbearable situation and gives mm. them the time uh, away. And it also can be seen as a free day off for them um, or a holiday from schoolwork, uh, especially if tests are coming up. <laughs> uh, um, also, uh, it can cause a lack of respect for the authority. Uh, for example, school staff, especially the head teachers or the class teachers, um, are seen as role models. Mm. When a punishment such as exclusion is given to them, uh, you know, this can feel to the student like the staff are giving up on them. Uh, yeah. And damages their relationship. You know, okay, go and you know do whatever you want. Basically, what that's what they they will think. Uh, and also, students may begin to feel um, that this respect and the effort that they are approached with is conditional on their behavior, and eventually will not be paid any attention in in future. Um, another cause is that the, uh, the students to lose uh, learning time and affects. Uh, on the exam results yeah, as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, for example, when the student is excluded for more than five days, uh, they must attend the PRU, which is the Pupil Referral Unit, yeah. or another school in the area of the d- the duration of the exclusion. And if it is less than this, the school must still provide work for the child where possible by post or online. And this means that the learning loss is reduced. Um, however, it is still very significant. Significant. Yeah. Uh, so. yeah, I mean, that's what our first guest was saying, wasn't he, uh, Said Nazid, when he explained that that's what should happen because there's a right for every student to continue to get um, an education. Yeah. So when we talk about the situation with kids um, and their education and the responsibility and the challenges that parents have as well, we've got our final guest of the show today, which is um, really proud to be able to speak with Emma Yates, who is a mother of a nine-year-old boy with neurodiverse disabilities in the main in and in a mainstream school so so she still managed to be able to keep her child in the mainstream as as well so um emma welcome to the drive time show and thank you for joining us today hi thanks a lot so um emma as as a mother of a child with a disability how do you feel about sending your child to school every day it must be really anxious for you right i do get really anxious yeah i mean in one sense it's great he loves school he loves his friends but on another sense i feel that he's not fully understood at school Mm. so he struggles with friendships he can struggle with his behavior in classrooms and I don't feel that's always understood by everybody. So, yeah, I do get anxious about what the teacher's going to speak to me about at the end of the day or whether or not he's going to be upset. Hmm. Um, but overall, at the moment, he is coping in mainstream school and he's happy. Um, that's in primary school, but I do worry about senior school. Yeah, I mean, you, you say that your 
son is nine years old. You're right. So next, it's, when when will he get into senior school? Has he got another two years or is it next year for he's him? He's got another two years. So, yeah. So he's, his diagnosis is ADHD and autism, which we only got diagnosed last year. Hmm. Um, so at the moment, he's coping, as like I said, in um, primary. But I've got to start looking probably next year for a secondary school and that's going to be the challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a really... Um, difficult situation to be in because not all schools are as tolerate and obviously they demand a lot more so I mean you'll have to find the right school in in the borough where you live do you think where he is now is getting sufficient help with his classwork and obviously it needs to be completed right I suppose you probably help him a little bit with that right it does. Um, I've recently changed his school and we've been getting a lot more support from this school. Mm. Um, when he first started, he was quite disruptive. Um, he has emotional dysregulation, so a lot of shouting out in class, a lot of walking around, a lot of refusing to do the work. Yeah. Um, luckily, last year, the school offered to send him on a pathway course, which was six weeks, um, away from the school with specialist teachers, just three of them in the classroom. They work with him over a period of six weeks and they put strategies in place for him and coping skills they then spoke to the teachers and explained what they needed to do such as movement breaks fidget toys things like that since being back at the school things have changed dramatically he is able to sit and work i mean he does need a lot of adult interactions so to get started to get finished on the project he will need help yeah um which unfortunately isn't in the classroom he's now 30 children to one teacher they have no classroom support at all which I think they really need because he takes up a lot of his teacher's time yeah unfortunately he isn't achieving any of his targets so I feel like he does need more support in the classroom yeah. he just he suffers with anxiety and he needs someone else there to sort of prompt him and help him just before um Zuckley comes in and asks you next question do you think smaller Included classrooms within the school would be a better option with a teacher dedicated to similar students? Yes, I do. Okay. I really do. Yeah. It's too much. Children with um, neurodevice disorders, they struggle with noise. They struggle with, you know, they with sensory issues. So I think taking the children away to smaller classes is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of children with, you know, neurodiverse conditions that's only just being um, diagnosed now. Yeah. So I think that might be a really good idea. Hmm. Uh, and what more do you think schools need to do to help uh, with children with disability? Okay, so I just believe in early intervention. Hmm. I think leaving a child until they're 9, 10, even 15 to get a diagnosis is far too late. Hmm. I think it needs to be picked up sooner and I think that schools, parents and health organisations need to work together in order to provide an environment for that child. Every child is different, every child learns differently, so I think something needs to be in place in that classroom before they even begin school. Hmm. And I think that people, like the representatives from home and from the school and from the authorities need to meet regularly in order to discuss the progress of the child and to put extra things in place if need be. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough intervention in the schools for each child. Hmm. And uh, uh, in in regards to, uh, as we were discussing about excluding students uh, for misbehaving, uh, just because they have a disability, um, it's it's something which has 
you know, become very common nowadays. Do you think anyone who becomes a teacher uh, should undergo compulsory training on dealing with these types of situations? Okay, so I think anybody who works in a school should undergo some form of training to mm. deal with children with any disabilities. No teacher should be expected to be an expert in all areas because it just wouldn't happen. And that's why I think you need to bring in specialist teachers to the school in order to deal with children with different needs. Mm. Unfortunately, due to lack of funding, due to lack of staffing, that is not happening at the moment. So in order for all our children to achieve their potential in, in an educational environment, we need more people in the schools, specialist teachers, because no teacher is going to be a specialist on that. You've got, you know, you've got three children in a class with special needs and one teacher to them, 30 children. That teacher can't be expected to be able to give all to those three children. Well, it sounds very similar to a situation where you've got police officers who are there to enforce the law but actually end up doing everything from managing the welfare of the person that they're going to see or, or arresting and, and looking after their mental health issues. I mean, and then putting them in the cell, letting them cool off or treating them when they seriously need help from a medical profession. It's very similar, isn't it, in that scenario where teachers do need their support with extra funding? Yeah, it's very similar. It is very similar. They do need support. It's, it's not fair on the teacher at all. So, so coming back to your situation, I mean, how confident are you that your child will be able to progress in his education? I know you're looking for an, a new school in, in two years. D are you confident in the current education system? No, I'm really not. I'm, I'm sad to say it, but I think we're years behind where we should be. Um, like I said, he's coping at the moment, but come secondary school, mm. there's no way he's going to cope with the you know, like the amount of students and having to go from classroom to classroom, sit and listen for an hour. Yeah, I, I really don't think that's going to happen. And unfortunately, the only way that you can get help is by getting an early, early healthcare plan. Yeah. Um, they are so hard to get. And without one of those, he won't get the extra support. So my fear is by the time we do get the extra support, it's going to be too late. He is very academically capable. Yeah. But I feel because of his problems that will hold him back and it's just going to be too late by the time we get the help. Well, we really wish you the best of luck uh, on that. And obviously, we'll be you know, kind of looking um, at this situation in more detail. And obviously, you're right. The, the, you've got no confidence in the education system. There's lack of funding. But, you know, we wish you the best of luck. But because there are so many stereotypes, aren't there, regarding children with disability and then put them in school, it can only sometimes exacerbate the situation. What would you say against those kind of stereotypes? Okay, so we've come a long way, yeah. I think, but there's still a long way to go. There's still judgments and assumptions against children with disabilities. Um, I think the answer is to educate people and I think to empower your child to realise that it's okay to be different is um, a good skill to teach them. Um, I just think that schools need to be more inclusive and have facilities for children of all abilities. You know, they have a right to feel part of community and I think we need to adapt to their, to yeah. their needs rather than them adapt to us. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, that very sounds very similar when we look at the situation with um, diversity, cohesion, equalities, and all that sort of stuff. Because you want to adapt to their needs as opposed to what fits best for us. And and I think a lot of work still needs to happen. Well, listen, really appreciate your time today, Emma. Thank you very much for sharing your personal story with us. And I, you've really shed some practical 
examples of how difficult it is and we wish you the best of luck. Okay, thanks very much for having me on. Thank uh, you. No, you're more than welcome. Thanks again. Bye for now. Thanks then. Bye. Bye. So again there, uh, Zachary, a very practical example of how challenging it, it, it is and what, how much more work we need to do hmm. to, to help. Um, because Emma's son is more than capable of learning, very academically able to do it, but yeah. just needs the right environment for hmm. him to excel. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's just the environment that has to change. And, and of course, she gave uh, beautiful tips that uh, schools can adopt uh, yeah. to, I mean... Uh, uh, for her child and also others um, who can you know, learn in a better environment, of course. Uh, but then there are, there are also alternatives to exclusion. Um, in, instead of excluding the children, there are other things. If, for example, a child is at risk mm. of exclusion, um, it's worth contacting the school to discuss whether any of the alternatives below uh, that we will be discussing now, um, um, uh, and 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 if they try this, um, if it's possible or not. For example, a, restor- uh, a restorative approach, uh, which is a um, approach establishes w- uh, that what harm has been done, uh, what is the need to um, uh, put things right, and how the situation can be avoided in future. Um, also, uh, internal exclusion, uh, which is um, uh, used when the aim is removed, um, the student from class and not from school site. Um, also, we have short-term off-site support. For example, schools are able to refer to people, uh, referring unit for short-term placements, and also manages uh, a managed moves. Uh, managed move is a def- is defined as a formal agreement between two schools, a student and their parents. Um, so, you know, these are some, you know, uh, alternatives hmm. that could be used as exclusion, of course. Yeah, I mean, they work so well with what Emma was saying as yeah. well because yeah. she kind of explained it in, in her lens of, of having a practical situation. Yeah. So what you said there was absolutely uh, amazing and it makes a lot of sense. So, look, we've come to the end of the show now and uh, we're about to finish but I wanted to just end by an extract from the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community who is the fifth Khalifa, His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed. He delivered uh, Amela be his helper he delivered a speech at York University in Toronto and there was this extract from the speech at which I just wanted to state and he said if we truly want peace in our time we must then act with justice we must value equality and fairness and as the holy prophet of islam and peace and blessings of allah be upon him so beautifully stated we must love for others what we love for ourselves we must pursue the rights of others and with the same zeal and determination that we pursue our own rights these are the means for peace in our age so it's okay, that kind of brings us to the end of the show. Yeah. And if you've got any reflections for the last 10 seconds, that'd be wonderful for because I mean, uh, the, the two shows were amazing. I mean, we've learned so much and hopefully the guests, they have learned from uh, our show as well. Um, and here is the six o'clock news.